His point in this article is that it's actually better for you as a user of generative AI when you're interacting with a chatbot to use polite language. And I actually used the opposite approach. I was like, I'm not talking with a human here. I can be a real asshole. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's how I am too. Hi, and welcome to GeekWire. I'm GeekWire co-founder Todd Bishop. And I'm GeekWire co-founder John Cook. We're coming to you from Seattle, where we get to report each day on what's happening around us in business, technology, and innovation. What happens here matters everywhere. And every week on this show, we talk about some of the most interesting stories and trends in the news. Coming up this week, Andy Jassy, Amazon CEO, tries to make the case that the company is not catching up in AI, but is actually ahead, and that generative AI will be a driver of growth for Amazon going forward. We'll hear and assess his comments later on in the show. But first, John, let's talk about something that's coming up for GeekWire that folks should know about because they could potentially take part in it if they're in the Seattle area. GeekWire's Rooftop Barbecue is coming up on August 9th here in Seattle. Tell us about this event. Well, yeah, it's our annual barbecue taking over a beautiful rooftop deck in the Pioneer Square neighborhood. We're going to have a lot of fun prizes, giveaways, special guests, which I guess we'll give a special little teaser here. Well, I'll just tell you who it is. <laughs> Who's coming out? We're going to interview John Stanton, the venture capitalist, wireless pioneer and owner of the Seattle Mariners. And one of the reasons he's joining us is because after the rooftop barbecue, we have uh, some tickets available to go to the Mariners. And so we have a big block of tickets going to the Mariners game. And Hopefully, they're going to be surging into that final wild card playoff spot by then. Yeah. So you, you went and saw them this past week. You saw, saw them beat the Red game. Sox. Yeah, that was a great game. Yes. Yes. So, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. We're going to have about 400 folks out on the on the deck of First Mode, which is a really, really cool office space and great barbecue, awesome views, few beverages, and it's look, looking like it's going to be a great Seattle summer day. So come out and join us and just go to geekwire.com slash events to look for your tickets. And hopefully we still have some available after this weekend. Nice. Okay. See everybody there on August 9th. And we'll also link to that from the show notes and the related post on GeekWire. Coming up later, we are going to be talking about how some startups are using generative AI. But this came up significantly in the context of Amazon's earnings this week. There has been at least the perception out there and perhaps justified that Amazon is playing catch up in this whole realm of generative AI. And we've seen over the past few weeks, the company make this huge concerted PR campaign to make the case that actually they've been doing this all along and there's a misperception that they're behind in this realm when you compare them to Google and Microsoft and OpenAI. And I think they've got some interesting points to make. So let's hear from Andy Jassy, Amazon CEO, on the company's earnings call on this topic. Generative AI has captured people's imagination, but most people are talking about the application layer, specifically what OpenAI has done with ChatGPT. It's important to remember that we're in the very early days of the adoption and success of generative AI, and that consumer applications is only one layer of the opportunity. We think of large language models and generative AI as having three key layers, all of which are very large in our opinion, and all of which AWS is investing heavily in. At the lowest layer is the compute required to train foundational models and do inference or make predictions. This lowest layer that Jassy is talking about is really interesting because there are only a few 
big companies that are in a position to do this. Amazon is one of those major companies, along with OpenAI and Microsoft and others. We think of the middle layer as being large language models as a service. Stepping back for a second, to develop these large language models, it takes billions of dollars and multiple years to develop. Most companies tell us that they don't want to consume that resource building themselves. Rather, they want access to those large language models, want to customize them with their own data without leaking their proprietary data into the general model, have all the security, privacy, and platform features in AWS work with this new enhanced model, and then have it all wrapped in a managed service. So you can see where he's starting to make the case for AWS here. Yeah, it's, it's almost uh, AWS AI. So you're going to package it up and sell it as another component of AWS. That's exactly what they're doing. So did I hear him correctly in saying that essentially companies could employ or buy an Amazon service, which would tap into all of the data that Amazon already has through their large language models, and then incorporate their own data from their own organization. So you're BMW or Ford, and you have your own set of data. Amazon probably has a bigger data set. You can merge these two data sets, and then Amazon will package up some sort of AI business model around that. Yes. Amazon is not the only company out there doing this, but it's one of a few. And that's what he's saying is that you'll have these AI platforms, essentially, that are analogous to the current cloud platforms in some ways. Right. And that's, I was just going to say, it's similar to the cloud-based model. Take all this infrastructure you don't want to run. We're better at it. We have a larger network, data centers to operate all your businesses in the cloud. AI is just a component that they can add on to their business. That's what he's saying. That's right. All right, let's keep listening to Andy Jassy here. If you think about these first two layers I've talked about, what we're doing is democratizing access to generative AI, lowering the cost of trading and running models, enabling access to large language model choice instead of there only being one option, making it simpler for companies of all sizes and technical acumen to customize their own large language model and build generative AI applications in a secure and enterprise-grade fashion, these are all part of making generative AI accessible to everybody and very much what AWS has been doing for technology infrastructure over the last 17 years. Then that top layer is where a lot of the publicity and attention have focused. And these are the actual applications that run on top of these large language models. As I mentioned, ChatGPT is an example. What's interesting to me in all of this is in each of these three clips I've played so far and in each of those two initial layers that he's talked about, and now in the third, OpenAI and Microsoft are getting these subtle digs from Jassy. Of course, the company's not competitor-focused, <laughs> except when you really look at the subtext and you see that in each of these cases, he's positioning Amazon in contrast to the weakest points of OpenAI and Microsoft, the potential to leak your data into the larger AI model, the question of choice of different large language models to use. Amazon's working in, with a number of different providers. And so you can see how he's trying to position Amazon and AWS against these other competitors. And then finally, this is the quote that's getting all the headlines out of the earnings call. Inside Amazon, every one of our teams is working on building generative AI applications that reinvent and enhance their customers' experience. But while we will build a number of these applications ourselves, most will be built by other companies. And we're optimistic that the largest number of these will be built on AWS. Remember, the core of AI is data. People want to bring generative AI models to the data, not the other way around. Every 
one of our teams is working on building generative AI applications. Every single one of our teams. That sounds implausible. So was there some kind of memo that went out? You must work on generative AI? Well, it kind of gets into what is the definition of AI. Right. Because AI, and this is, I think we're struggling with this. Everyone's labeling themselves as AI or generative AI. And AI has been around. I mean, essentially, in one way you can define it is it's kind of using data, right? It's data science. And data science has been built into every product from Microsoft to Amazon to Meta for years. So I kind of understand what they're saying, but they're playing off the buzz of AI, talking a lot about it. He doesn't need to be talking about this, right? Why is he choosing to talk about this? Well, because it's what all the investors and employees and people want to know about. But if it's always been around, it's always been part of part of how they do things. Why do they need to be talking about it so much right now? I think there's two elements here. There's the hype cycle and then there's the potential reality. So let's let's talk about that right after we come back. You're listening to GeekWire and we'll be right back. Technology moves fast. I need to move faster. WGU's competency-based education puts me in control of how fast I move through my IT degree program. I can accelerate my program by applying what I already know to my courses and focusing on the things I need to learn. Earn a respected accredited degree that propels your career in the IT field. Learn more at wgu.edu backslash IT certs included. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. We're talking about generative AI, hype, and reality. John, you were just about to perhaps disagree with me on my assertion that there's actual substance here. No, I wasn't going to (laughs) disagree with you on that. I think there is substance to it. And I, I think my point was more along the lines of these technologies have been around for a long period of time. AI has, obviously. But this idea of large language models and these machines predicting at this astonishing volume and speed what the characters should be in response to your query, that really has only been popularized over the past year, starting with ChatGPT and OpenAI. And granted, there were earlier versions of OpenAI's GPT, but they were not nearly as effective or as impressive as the ones we're seeing now. Point taken, but let's go back into the history books. I mean, in the Seattle region, I mean, think of a company, I'm really going to date myself here. Remember Faircast? Faircast was a startup company created by Oren Etzioni, who went on to lead the Artificial Intelligence Institute here, AI2, in the Seattle area. And Faircast, I don't know, what was it, 15 years old? And they were ingesting all this data to predict whether airfares were going to go up or down. How is it different? Well, maybe it's not a language model. Maybe it was just a data model. Right, right. It was the difference. But they were taking big sets of data that no one else could just, you know, scratch out on their notepad with their pen and paper and figure this out. They needed to crunch the numbers and use the AI technology to put a fair prediction on what your flight from Seattle to Boston would be. So... It's been around for a long time. I guess what you're saying is the difference is now it's with words, and that's what makes it different. It's not only with words, but it's with a pace and a volume and an effectiveness 
that is just exponentially greater, I think, than the tools that Ornezioni and the Faircast team had to work with when they were creating that product. And you're seeing it also being widely available. You're seeing the use of GPUs and the computing capacity just be on a whole other level. And this is, in that way, it's different. And, and But that's the history of technology. Yes. I mean, yeah. Moore's Law, right? Right. You know, I mean, that's, it's, things do exponentially grow and technologies build on top of one another to get you to the point that something like generative AI is now here. Right. I guess it's just building it's blocks. It's here. It's building blocks. And I do think companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Meta have been using data to build the products that they put out. To your point, we talked a couple weeks ago on the podcast with Rohit Prasad from Amazon's Alexa team, and he contends that Amazon's been doing large language models all along for Alexa. So there is a lot of truth to what you're saying here, but the application that OpenAI came out with opened so many eyes, no pun intended or no play on words intended, I think there's just this realization now of what this can actually do right now and this fascination with what it could do in three months, six months, a year, five years, 10 years. Like, where are we going to be? People now see the true potential, and it's not just theoretical. Now, by the way, Rohit Prasad, in the time since I spoke with him about a month ago for the podcast, it just emerged this past week. There was a report in Insider revealing that he is now no longer in the role that he was in when we talked to him. He's now reporting directly to Andy Jassy. Andy Jassy has created a new role for Rohit Prasad, and the goal will be creating some of the company's, quote, most ambitious large language models. So hmm. clearly Amazon is not just saying, oh, we've been doing this all along. They're saying, oh, crap, we've got to do more. <laughs> and that's what this new position for Rohit Prasad is I followed up with him this week and I was like, wait a second, like literally he got this role between the time we spoke with him for the podcast when he was leading the Alexa team and now, and they're like, yes, that's how fast it happened. Huh? Well, that says something, doesn't it? Yes. That they're moving pretty fast and moving people into these positions to build out these new efforts. So there was a story by Nate Beck about a panel of investors and startup founders. And one thing that really stood out to me was a comment that was made by Yuval Neiman from Trilogy Equity Partners. And it gets to a component of what Andy Jassy said there in the last clip about companies wanting to bring their own data to these large language models. And the question was, how can startups using OpenAI's API differentiate themselves from one another? Because it's, you know, a common API. And Yuval Neiman's response was, the question I ask as an investor is, where's my edge in selecting who to invest in? And he says they've landed on two things. One is if the founder has access to a proprietary data set that no one else has access to. And the second would be some unique distribution channel. That data set is really interesting. And it seems like that's where the startup focus in all of this is going. It's not just, oh, the wizardry of OpenAI's chat GPT. It's what is the unique thing the unique set of data that each startup can bring to this. And to your point, look at Faircast back in the day. They had this data set about historical airfares that they were able to use to predict prices going forward. And it's essentially the same thing in a new way with these large language models. Or, or you think of a Zillow with the Zestimate. It's very similar. Yes. 
So this stuff has been around. This is not a new concept, to your point, but it's on a whole other level. Yeah, I'm thinking about that comment, and it does strike me that very few companies, especially startups, are in the position to have either of those things because they haven't been around. So how have they collected the data? I mean, in the case of Zillow, which I think most people know when, when they started and they got this estimate, they went through many, many years and pains to collect that data from public sources and other means to get that data set. And it wasn't an easy task to get that. And it was well-resourced and led by a well-known entrepreneur to get that to happen. So I'm thinking in terms of the entrepreneurs and startups out there that are building companies in this arena, that that is a huge challenge that where do you get that data and how do you access it for the product that you have? And then building the distribution mechanism is also not easy. I mean, look how much advertising Zillow has done over the years to get to the position they are to create a distribution network that now brings in millions and millions of eyeballs on, onto, their, onto their tool. So, I mean, I guess that's why people do startups. It's really, really, really hard. But those two problems seem maybe not insurmountable, but those are two major problems that I think startups are going to run into. And we've talked about it on the podcast too. This is why these very large companies, the Metas, the Microsofts, the Amazons of the world are such in a good position as it relates to AI because they have massive amounts of data. So I think it's going to be a hard playing field uh, for startup companies that are moving into this arena. It seems like the opportunity has gotten bigger, but the challenges have gotten bigger as well when you think of it that way. And like most startup companies, you have to pick off a real narrow niche and start there and master it and then try to grow from there, you know, kind of the land and expand model. But, um, and then you see that with some companies in the Seattle area, like Lexion comes to mind, which is using generative AI in the legal field and with contract management. Udly with speech coaching, helping right. people learn how to be better public speakers using AI. Right. And so then you start to wonder all these smaller niches that it, it almost reminds me of uh, the iPhone and the app store to a degree that remember back in the day, there was like Urban Spoon, which was a restaurant locator, really cool that if you shook your phone, it would spin a dial and uh, would pull up a, a restaurant near you that you could go and go to. But like, it's a cool little startup and cool company, but that's not turning into the next tech titan. And so it seems like there are a lot of potential niche applications that will be created, but will, be, will they become very, very large venture-backed, venture-backable companies? I don't know. Obviously, a lot of venture capitalists think there will be because they're putting a lot of money to work in, in these arenas. Does that suggest then that these startups, if they are backed by venture or angel funding, end up exiting more frequently as acquisition targets to add their features to other large companies? Rather that's than what I would think. I mean, IPOs. and that's traditionally what's happened. I mean, there are Historically, there have been many, many more mergers and acquisitions than there have been IPOs and companies growing much, much larger. So, I mean, it seems like it would follow that path. I just bring it up in the context of maybe entrepreneurs should reset expectations and the venture capitalists should reset expectations too, that maybe it's a, it's a single that, that you're trying to hit or a double versus, you know, you're building the next 
Amazon or Microsoft or Meta. What this reminds me of in part is that era a few years ago when you had different home improvement data companies, Porch, which is still around, and a publicly traded company, which is a whole other story, and Pro.com, which ended up selling to Opendoor. They really focused on getting home improvement data. And I don't think they were as much into the prediction as they were into providing leads to contractors, which with the labor shortages that got turned all around because it was really home owners who were more in a position of needing the contractors than contractors in terms of needing the business. But yet I remember that they were doing a lot of partnerships to get that data. And it makes me think that one answer here for these kinds of new startups may be partnerships with non-competitors to get the kind of data that they need to bring something unique to these large language models and then inform their offerings in that way. Yeah. And then you take all that data and then you go to Amazon who packages up a, you know, business for you through the AWS and use them just as you're using them for all your cloud infrastructure. So Amazon's probably getting much richer in all of this because they're selling all the tools to the people building in this ecosystem. So now you're making the case that Andy Jassy was making in the first segment. Well, that's what they're probably trying to do, right? Yes, I that's mean, exactly that's, what they're trying yeah. to do. All right. Before we wrap up, I want to share something that made me optimistic. I'm trying to come up with maybe a new segment name. <laughs> but we'll... Being positive with Todd Bishop. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds almost new, like new, Stuart Smalley. Yeah, <laughs> new podcast. <laughs> all right. But there was something that I saw this week that made me feel good about all of this stuff for just a moment. So let's talk about that when we come back. This GeekWire podcast is sponsored in part by Yale University Press. Are you concerned about the rise of AI and how it will impact our society? Every day, artificial intelligence presents us with urgent ethical challenges. How do we harness this extraordinary technology to empower rather than oppress? Nigel Shadbolt and Roger Hampson have written a how-to for building ethical machine intelligence. Their new book, As If Human, Ethics and Artificial Intelligence, is now available wherever books are sold. Welcome back. It's Todd Bishop with John Cook. We're talking about artificial intelligence this week. Last week, we did talk about drones. Todd, I gotta, I'll gotta. stop you for a second because I just walked into the office with my dog. You know, it's one of my traditions when I come into the office and I listened to the pot. It was wonderful. That was a fantastic interview. Loved you being on location. Yeah. With And what a fascinating story with Brink Drones. It great, was... great follow-up. I'm so glad you followed up and spent some time with him. You know, I saw him at the GeekWire Awards. He was a finalist at the GeekWire Awards. And I didn't mention this on the show, but I mean, he's immediately recognizable because of his hair, cool hair. So anyway, I saw him at the, the GeekWire Awards, recognized him. And I was like, Blake, I, I followed your company for a while. We've reported on it, but other reporters have. I'd love to just sit down and talk with you. And it was so cool. He followed up afterward. And it's really interesting to me when you get into that startup realm with a smart founder and super young, 23 years old. And he was just like, hi, welcome. Let me show you around, you know? Yeah. There yeah. Were... He was seemed really interesting, yeah. really interesting person to interview. I'm glad you did that. And, um, and that the story, story, the story of him getting his first investment. <laughs> if I'll just tease it from Sam Altman, the yes. open AI, speaking if of AI, the yes. open AI uh, founder, it was just an amazing story of how he got Sam Altman to invest as it 
invest in this company. So if you've not listened, go back and listen to last week's GeekWire podcast. I give it a big uh, thumbs up. All right. On to the reason for hope in this new era of AI. There was a story that came out on Microsoft's Work Lab site this week, and it just caught my attention. It is on Microsoft. It's not a news story, but it came from one of their AI directors on the design team for Microsoft Copilot. So obviously, they're putting this out there to promote their Copilot, which is something we've talked about on the show. But his point, and his name is Curtis Beavers, his point in this article is that it's actually better for you as a user of generative AI when you're interacting with a chatbot to use polite language. Say please to the chatbot. And I loved this. And the reason is these large language models respond in a way that they think humans would respond. So if you say please in your query, it's more likely to respond in a constructive and helpful way. Have you ever gotten caught in the uh, automated voice systems of customer yes. service Yes, with an airline or a credit card company? I don't think my tone would work very well <laughs> with with in those systems or with the AI system. So I think I would, I need something. I need to learn something here. I get me. so frustrated with that. And I'm sure people are get the wait when you interact with a machine, I think you are more terse and angry. So it's interesting to hear, but, but I think it goes against human nature. I think you're right. And I've got my own example of that, which I can share, but his point is it's a giant prediction machine making highly probabilistic guesses as to what would plausibly come next. So when it hears politeness, it's more likely to be polite and helpful back. I actually, after reading this, rethought and revisited an early experience that I had with the preview version of the Bing chatbot where I got super frustrated with it because it was generating hallucinations and giving me false information. And I actually used the opposite approach. I was like, I'm not talking with a human here. I can be a real asshole. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I am too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to put on some kind of veneer of politeness. Yeah. I can just say, that was stupid. You know, why'd you do that? And okay. I, I use so, that kind of So phrases. have you changed your behavior now with the AI? Now that I've read this, I just read yeah. this this morning, okay. literally. So okay. now perhaps I will. But on the subject of hallucination, by the way, there was discussion of that in some of the Seattle Startup Week panels. One startup CEO mentioned that they had an open AI model creating fictitious emails in interactions with customers. In other words, saying, email this email address, and it just didn't exist at the company, and it made them rethink having direct interactions between generative AI and customers without some kind of human oversight or intervention, which speaks to the current limitations. But maybe if the customers had just said, please, they would have gotten <laughs> the, the right yeah. response. <laughs> All right. We hope to see you on Wednesday, August 9th at our big rooftop barbecue. And again, you can find links to register for that in the show notes. We do think that perhaps by the time this comes out, the Mariners tickets may be gone. We'll, we'll see. We can, you can always buy one in the open market and just come to the barbecue and pregame with us. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the GeekWire podcast wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Todd Bishop. And I'm John Cook. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the GeekWire podcast.